Hello and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple, and today we're back in the studio with another great episode. And full disclosure, as I always am on the podcast, we've got a special guest for you guys today, someone that I've actually gotten to know over the last couple of months, and someone we're excited to have on the podcast because we're going to be talking a little bit further in the podcast about something we're doing together with this gentleman and, and the wonderful work he's doing. Um, but with that, I wanted to introduce our guest today on the Project Purple Podcast, Gary Rosenthal. Gary, thank you for joining us on the Project Purple Podcast. Well, uh, Dino, thanks so much for inviting me to talk about my journey. And, and uh, you know, I, I like to think I'm not a survivor, but I'm even a thriver right now. I was able to uh, uh, go for a bike ride this morning, and, and wow. that's after, um, you know, a Whipple procedure back in March and uh, full open heart surgery in uh, July. So it's nice to know that, you know, I've been resilient enough to bounce back, and I wish the same for other folks as well. Well, appreciate you joining us. Uh, you know, as I said in the opening, we have gotten to know each other over the last couple months. And, and full disclosure, uh, I think I told you this story, but a, an alumni of ours, I think, had seen, had come onto your website. And she's like, wow, this is a really cool idea. And I started digging into your website. And then you and I connected and then it's kind of been this dialogue back and forth and, and, you know, what we wanted to do and try to work with each other. And, and just, I wanted to get you on the podcast because just from getting to know you over the last couple of months, I think your story is pretty inspirational and love to share with our audience. So with that, as we always do on the podcast, this is your opportunity, Gary, to share with our audience your backstory. And as we were saying before we hit the record button, you can go as far back, you can stay as high level as you want. And with that, the mic is yours. Well, uh, thank you very much. And uh, I, I guess you said I could go back as far as I like, but I want to go back as far as uh, my college years. And it's been uh, <laughs> a, a long time since then, but I'm a, uh, I'm a sculptor and um, I make things out of metal and glass. And I was at Cornell uh, back in the 70s. And I decided, um, you know, early one morning after a late night and a hangover that I was going to give up on girls and I better have a hobby. And so just by chance, it was right before, um, you know, finals week, but they had a craft show at the student union. I went to the craft show and um, I spent most of study week uh, making things. I I'd never really had a, a natural propensity towards art or being an artist or anything like that. But it's what I did, and then I, I dropped out of college that next year because that was another part of my, uh, uh, you know, process of, of, you know, becoming who I was. And I went to work for my dad, who had a stove and refrigerator repair shop, and I was fixing stoves and refrigerators uh, full time. But I also um, decided that what I wanted to do with my artwork, since I needed to have a hobby and keep busy, was I was going to um, learn how to be a metal sculptor. I went out and I bought an acetylene torch, and I had already used it once before fixing uh, stove grates for, uh, you know, stoves that we repaired at my dad's shop. But I decided I was going to make, um, you know, artwork with it. And so, you know, I, I just started melting metal together. This is probably in about 1975 or 1974 even. And um, I got pretty good at it. And um, I was I was melting metal together, and I was doing figurines and I was at the time doing everything from 
uh, you know, uh, I was at, I was at um, Cornell and Ithaca, so they had a big lacrosse team. So I was doing lacrosse figurines that they ended up eventually, uh, you know, selling through the Hall of Fame. And then we, I did a lot of dancers. I did people's hobbies, but the dancers, I, I eventually went on to make the Miss and the Mr. Dance America trophy for Dance Masters of America. And I was making all of these interesting things because I was very much tied into my audience, as I still am today. And I wanted to make things that people would look at and like and want for themselves. And, uh, you know, I guess I was insecure that I wanted them to like me through liking what I did. And so I was busy making all these different things. And I was going to craft shows after I graduated. I went back to Cornell. I graduated. But after I went out um, on my own after school, I basically, uh, rather than going back to work or getting a job, I, I did my artwork, which was more than a full-time job. And I would travel all over the country with, a, you know, my Conaline van filled with, you know, little rocks that look like snow that I'd have a skier going down or a piece of car mm-hmm. that a coral that a scuba diver would be going through or, or a dancer, you know, stretching at a bar in front of a mirror. You know, all those things. And then eventually, um, I was at a show one day and someone came up to me and they asked me if I could make a menorah. Well, for those of you who don't know what a menorah is, I have to be Jewish. And um, basically, there's um, uh, a special candle holder that people use for uh, Hanukkah. It's called a menorah. And it's got a certain number of candles, and one's higher than the other, and there are a couple of rules about it. But a menorah was just one of many pieces that Jewish people use to um, celebrate um, and, you know, enjoy their faith. It's everything from a special candle holder for Hanukkah to a special candle holder for um uh, you know, the Shabbat, the Friday night services. Uh, there are pieces of artwork that hold a scroll that go on my door called a mezuzah. And I started making these things back in the 19, um, you know, late 1970s, early 1980s. And I got, again, I got really good at um, what I was doing. And eventually um, I had 50 employees. We couldn't make, um, you know, our craft fast enough. I mean, you know, you, you hear from artists that it's very hard to, you know, earn a living. Well, that wasn't my issue. My problem was people loved what I made. We couldn't make it fast enough. And so, you know, my folks were busy coming in on Saturday and Sunday to try and, you know, keep up with the demand for what we were doing. And through all of this, um, I never really thought of myself as an artist. I was a guy that was making things. I, I thought of myself more as a manufacturer. I enjoyed what I was doing. and uh, It was a lot of fun, and I liked having an operation where people were, were working. But, you know, I also, um, instead of becoming an artist when I was in college, you know, I really thought I was going to become a social worker. Um, huh. I thought I was, you know, that was just what I was uh, leaning towards at the time. And... Um, you know, if if I had not uh, dropped out of college, I probably would have gotten a degree and I would have gone into some sort of social work trying to help people out. And so now I'm in the 1990s. I've got a successful business. I've got 50 employees. We have uh, fans and collectors all over the world that are using my work on a regular basis. And for me, the whole thing was very, um, even though I describe myself as a manufacturer and I'm uncertain about the art, the things that I made were very spiritual to me. Um, I, I truly believe that what I was making was more than just the stuff that it was. You know, for instance, if I was, um, you know, making a special candlestick that 
you know, someone would light on the Sabbath. Basically, um, you know, I would think that when they lit that candlestick the first time on a Friday night service in their family, uh, you know, before dinner, you know, they were inviting me into their home, and that was very important to me. Or if we made a charity box, I always thought that God had this wonderful mass where if somebody put money into the charity box, uh, they got credit for it because I made the box. That was a good thing, too. And so, you know, my whole life was making these things that, uh, that, that I hope would matter, that would bring, uh, you know, just, not just enjoyment and pleasure to people, but also would uh, somehow or another, uh, you know, they would be able to enjoy the spirit that we put into it. And so it became very important to me um, what kind of business we ran, what kind of um, uh, attention went into making the things that we made. And, you know, I focused on the operation to make sure that the things we made were, were special. You know, we had been, um, uh, you know, named the outstanding employer by both, um, you know, Jewish social services in the Washington, D.C. area, and also, um, you know, a group called CSAC, which is, you know, they work with uh, special needs uh, adults. I've uh, For 20 years now, I've had two um, high-functioning autistic men working for me. They touch almost everything that goes out of there. And to me, that's important. That's part of the story of who we are. It's part of what we care about when we put things into our, our, our products that we make. And I always told people that I felt as if my fingerprints stayed in what I made forever. And that's why I was so careful with what I with what I did. Well, you know, fast forward again to the 90s. I've been at this for 20 years now, and I have a successful business. And um, I decided that the social worker in me had to had to come out. I had to somehow uh, make the business that I did, uh, you know, reflect the good that I wanted to do in the world. And so at the time, we created something called the, the Hidon Mitzvah Project. If you're Jewish, there's 613 mitzvahs, good deeds that you're supposed to do in your life. And one of them was beautifying Jewish rituals, so I had that already. And so I decided what I wanted to do was to um, create a hidden mitzvah project so that I could help other people beautify things that they made. Uh, again, that wonderful you know, mass of, of taking what you do and helping other people do it, leveraging it into more than just a single person, you know, melting a piece of metal together to make a candlestick. And so what we did was we, um, by this time we were working in glass and we were, you know, I like to think one of the better, um, you know, warm glass people in the, in the, in the country. We didn't use a glory hole or we glue glass, but we did everything on the kiln shelf and that's known as warm glass. And, you know, I, I think we were sort of a, uh, you know, hard to call it an industry leader, but, you know, we were certainly, um, quite good at what we did. We made beautiful things. And, um, I decided that what I wanted to do was to help other people make pretty things out of glass as well. And the way to do that was to um, uh, let people make a glass mosaic that they would piece together, then it would come back to my studio, I would fire it. And once the glass was fired, it would turn into um, uh, the medallion, the front piece, you know, some part of a special candlestick or a special charity box or whatever item it may be that they or they and their children wanted to make together. And so um, 
I ended up, uh, you know, creating this missile project. And we would travel the country. It was sort of like I was a, you know, a rock counselor. We'd go into a community, whether it was Dallas, Texas, or Minneapolis, and we'd work with anywhere from, uh, you know, 50 to 550 people in a weekend that would, you know, sit down and they'd make these glass mosaics. I'd bring them back to my studio, like I said, and then uh, a month later, I would mail a box full of Sinister artwork to all the people that were part of that program. And, you know, I let them know that now, you know, their fingerprints were in the things they made. If if a father worked with um, a daughter to create a special candlestick, they'd have that forever. Uh, you know, and it would, it would be the act of making it as much as the thing that it was that became important. And, you know, we were doing this for a couple of years, literally working with tens of thousands of people all over the world. And I said, well, you know, maybe there's a, another way to um, uh, work with this project. And um, what we did then is, is with some of the uh, people around the country who had put on the Dortmund for projects, we created something called the Glass Ribbon Project, which now is probably about, um, you know, 18 or 20 years old. And what we did with the Glass Ribbon Project is we made a decision that we were going to invite people to create the artwork around a theme, and the theme happened to be breast cancer. And what we did was we created a special collection of glass pieces that were pink and white and, you know, different shades of color that all complemented one another. And we would send a bag of pink glass, and we'd send a, a pre-cut piece of glass that was shaped with a candlestick or something that we were working on. Um, to the to the person, and then they would they would make this medallion of glass. It would come back to me, and then we would fire it and again send back a, a candlestick to this person that would be something they would light every Friday night for their Shabbat to celebrate the Shabbat, but also to celebrate uh, the actual creation of the item. And one of my first projects was a um, uh, a woman who, uh, with three of her college roommates, four of them. Every year for the last 20 years, they had gone out together uh, for a summer vacation weekend together, week together. And um, uh, Michelle found out that she was basically, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. And she was going in for um, surgery a few, you know, a week after, um, you know, she was supposed to be away on a vacation. She just couldn't get away. And so she invited her three friends to come by my studio and the four of them sat around. I bought them lunch and gave them the materials and they spent probably four hours together talking, creating the special pieces of glass, actually four pieces of glass. And then what we did was they all worked on each other's pieces of glass. And so as I say that, you know, your fingerprints, my fingerprints stay on what I made. Suddenly you have four women who are best friends who are supporting, um, you know, the one friend who had, uh, breast cancer, um, you know, they suddenly had these four, four weeks later, they had four candlesticks that were each made by, um, by all of them. And what this meant was that when they let the candles on, on a Friday night, they were all together again. They were really spiritually in the same room. That's, that's what I believe. And, um, you know, as, as they're around the country, they're in four different cities now. You know, they're connecting with one another through the glass that they made. And so we worked with um, uh, sisterhood organizations and women's auxiliaries. We had a whole collection of pink glass that we did. We sold it through stores. 
and we raised money, um, you know, for to support those with uh, breast cancer. And um, we we ended up teaming with an organization called Charcheret. Some of you may be familiar with it, but it was a, um, a, a basically an organization that uh, a friend of mine, an acquaintance that I became close to, Rochelle Form. She had been a um, uh, clerk for Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the Supreme Court, and while she was clerking, she came down was diagnosed with uh, breast cancer, and so she had to leave that job. and She was under treatment, was successfully treated, was thriving, and she decided that what she wanted to do was to create a group called Charcheret, and this group supported uh, Jewish women with breast cancer, mainly younger Jewish women, as it turns out. Um, you know, with the BRCA gene, there were many people who, um, you know, actually, you know, suffer from breast cancer. It's just part of the, the genetics of, of who we are. And so I worked with Rochelle on many projects for a number of years. And then, unfortunately, Rochelle had a, uh, a relapse. Mm-hmm. And she called me up before she went into um, hospice care. She said, Gary, look, I'd like to make some artwork with my with my two boys. I think at the time one was seven and one was eleven. And um what she wanted to do was to basically make um two candlesticks with them. She did that and then after the fact um I sent them back to her, you know, within a couple of days. We did all this overnight because we didn't know how much time we had. And um she ended up taking these candlesticks, she gift wrapped them, put in pictures of her making the glass with her with her sons and basically put a wedding card in it. And so what she was doing was she was creating, you know, sort of her future with her with her children. She knew she wouldn't be there for the wedding, but what she wanted to do was to be part of it. And, you know, I truly believe that because of this, not only was she part of it, but, you know, part of the wedding and part of this experience with her sons. But I'm hoping her sons, you know, sons and daughters get a chance to light this candlestick. And, you know, the story will be told of how Grandma helped make it. And so we tried to set up these little um, opportunities where, where people could make them. Uh, about the same time, uh, I, was, um, I was doing reading in the area. And I read this story about it where it's really shocking. And that name may be familiar with you to you. If it's not, go ahead and Google it. I, I think Lily was the first nurse navigator. Um, Lily basically was at Johns Hopkins University, and she was a nurse's nurse. And she basically was training other nurses how to be wonderful nurses. And um, she was then diagnosed with breast cancer. And I was reading this story about her, and it, she was talking about how she was walking along the beach in North Carolina, I believe it was North Carolina, with her mother. And as they were walking along the beach, she said, Mom, I've got some bad news for you. I've been diagnosed with uh, breast cancer. And I'm going to fight it. We're going to beat it, the whole deal like that. And um, her mother reached down and picked up two stones and gave one stone to Lily, kept one for herself, and said, I'm not going to be able to be there with you all the time. But what I'd really like to be able to do is to... um, know when you're going into your chemo, when you're going into your surgical procedures, I want you to know that I'm going to be holding on to this stone that we've just you know, picked up together. And I'm going to be thinking about you. I'm going to be saying a prayer for you. So, you know, basically, 
in my mind, I heard about that. I said, this is such a wonderful idea that what I'd like to do is to um, create what I'm going to call strength zones. And this was close to 20 years ago. And what we then did was we worked with, uh, you know, people who were touched by cancer in one way or another, primarily breast cancer. And what we would do is we would create sheets of glass. Imagine a piece of glass that's a quarter of an inch thick and, you know, eight inches by 12 inches long. And then what I do is after, you know, the mother works on this with her whole family or after a women's auxiliary group works on this when one of their members has just been diagnosed with breast cancer, whatever it may be, what, what we end up doing is we take that sheet of glass, it comes back to the studio, we fire it into a single piece. And, you know, at this point in time, again, I keep coming back to it. I like to think that everybody that worked on that piece of glass, whether it was the, um, you know, the patient or a best friend or a son or a daughter or whoever it may be, their fingerprints are all on this piece of glass right now. And we would take that piece of glass, we would then cut it up into one-inch squares, and then we would take these little wafers of glass, we'd put them back in the kiln, we'd refire them, and they'd come out this really smooth stone of glass. And so then what we would do is we'd send these stones back to the uh, women that were involved in, in creating them, or the, the families, friends, whatever it may be. And, um, you know, they would give it to, uh, you know, friends, family, people that were were there, people that were in other states. And they would say, just, you know, hold on to this as part of me. It's it's something that's important. Say a, say a prayer with it. And so we did this program for probably the last, you know, 15 years. And, and you know, we, we think of it as sharing strength, uh, sharing hope, and, um, you know, sharing strength. And, and you know, so, you know, it, it's, it's those couple of things, strength, hope. And um, we, we really, you know, think that it makes a difference to some of the people that uh, take this, this glass stone, they hold on to it, and it matters. And, and I like to think that it does. And, you know, it, it always made me feel so, um, uh, you know, just feel so good that I was able to create this thing and work with other people to make something that mattered. And during this entire time, uh, you know, basically, I was healthy as a as a son of a gun. You know, I I ate terribly, lived well, looked good. Uh, you know, my favorite food was steak and fried chicken. And, um, I sure had plenty of it over the years, but I still, you know, I just was blessed with that that fast metabolism. Mm-hmm. You know, and I was skinny, and I rode the bicycle, and I went to the gym, and I ate fried chicken, and I did my work. And then, you know, I'm, I'm living a good life. I'm in a car, uh, actually in my van. I actually, I had to rent a truck because I was driving up to, uh, Boston, uh, last August to deliver a, uh, commission piece we had done for a synagogue in, uh, Brooklyn. And I'm getting ready to pull into the hotel in, uh, in Boston the night before we're going to do the installation. And all of a sudden I got an upset stomach. And, you know, it just came out of the blue. Didn't know where it came from. I just barely made it to the bathroom that night. And my stomach exploded. It was just, you know, something that had never really happened to me before. And so that was in probably May of 2019. And it took a while to get diagnosed. But then, Dina, what happened was I found out that I had uh, no enzymes in my stomach. 
And that's why I couldn't diagnose, digest the food. And that's why I ended up with, you know, a, a bad stomach issue. And so that was, that, that sort of brings us to today. Um, I'll stop for a second. You know, you can ask me a question or two yeah, off, off I, I, base with what, but, you know, then we can talk about, you know, sort of how I, I'm taking my glass ribbon project and expanding it beyond yeah, absolutely. Um, breast cancer patients to everybody. And, um, you know, but here I'll stop for a second because otherwise I'll just keep talking. <laughs> well, I, I, I love the, the backstory. And, and quite honestly, I didn't know the, the whole backstory. I mean, from going to the website and, uh, you know, reading and, and from you and I becoming, you know, friends here over the last couple of months, as I said in the opening. But I've got a question for you going way back, way back to the very beginning. So you were at Cornell, and, and Cornell is a, a Ivy League school, and I, I think of Cornell as more of a business school or a liberal arts school. I, I don't think of it as an art school. So, and you laugh, but you know, hearing you talk about these accomplishments, Gary, I don't hear you mention anything at all of any type of training that you did for sculpture, other than that you said, you know, you were working in your dad's business, which involved a uh -huh. torch and kind of working with metal grates, which is a lot different than, you know, sculpting, uh, as you said, yeah. like you were sculpting, uh, you know, lacrosse players, or, you know, you were putting all these different materials, it sounded like together. That's, that's, that's an art. That's not something that, that you know, and, and no, offense to what you were doing with metal grates. I mean, it's one material and, and grates, if, uh -huh. I, if I, if my memory serves me right, grates are usually, you know, north and south. They don't, there's not really, there's not a complexity to, to, to oven grates or to uh, stovetop grates. So did you, where did that come from? Did you have training or was it just something? No, that, I mean, it's really, it's a, it's a funny story in that, you know, I, I won't mention Amy's last name, but, you know, I, I literally went out on a date and I was in love at the time. You know how that is when you're 20. Yeah. And I went out with Amy and Amy just, you know, she said, let's be friends. And I got hung over that night. And like I said, at the very beginning, I went to the craft show at, at school and I decided I'm giving up on girls. I'm going to need to have a hobby. And so I started making things. I'm, I'm entirely self-taught. Uh, wow. You know, just by the way, uh, I ended up getting Amy back. I introduced her to one of my best friends. They got <laughs> married and he took her to Cleveland. And I figured that's the punishment that I have for her, <laughs> you know, for not having with me. And, and now, you know, I'm, I'm happily married, uh, you know, going on 39 years and have a couple of kids. So, yeah. you know, the, uh, the, the not going out with girls didn't work for very long. But, um, you know, I did decide to get into the the art field. It was just a crazy thing. It's just one of those crazy things you do when you're a kid. I had, I had no natural, uh, I'd never done any art in school or anything wow. like that. And, you know, I always thought of myself not as an artist, but as a craftsperson. And I, I took a year off of uh, Cornell and I was working with my dad. I was making things and everything. And I went back and at Cornell, there was a... Um, you know, sort of the chairman of the art department, his name was Jason Seeley. And Jason was a great guy. He worked in car bumpers. That's all he did. And if you go into a Uris library at Cornell, you see a 20 foot tall knight on a horse made out of car bumpers. You know, they had to probably raise the roof to put this thing on the inside. And, you know, 
on St. Patrick's Day, he had a car that he made out of car bumpers that he would drive around and <laughs> all the architects would be behind him with green beer and they would do stuff <laughs> like that. Well, I went to Jason after I came back to Cornell, you know, after taking some time off, and I brought three or four of the pieces that I was doing. I, I showed them to Jason, and he looked at them, and he turned his nose up, and he said, Gary, you don't have any sense of aesthetics or light or shape. And he said, Gary, you know what? The only chance you'd have is if you took some art classes, maybe with me, but my classes are full. You can't do it. And then he looked down at me, and the ultimate insult, he said, he said, Gary, you know what? You're going to sell like crazy. People are going to love your work. (laughs) And, you know, all I can tell you is that, um, you know, he had a crystal ball. Uh, You know, he knew that that the stuff that I made, there's just something about the stuff, the stuff, I keep calling it stuff, but, you know, when I made things, I was tied into my audience because mm-hmm. I, I wasn't, you know, sort sort of an artist that was working outside of his heart and with his soul to start with in terms of the aesthetics of things. I wanted to make things that people liked. And, um, you know, so as a result, I, I, I did that, you know, I guess I was a pretty smart guy. I understood people. I was able to, um, you know, I would do one thing, a person would look at it and they'd say, I'd like it better if it was like this. And I didn't, you know, get angry at them for wanting it to be better, something they would like better. I went out and did it. And, you know, so I've spent my life trying to, um, you know, make things that, that work without getting too tied up on, um, you know, sort of the personal aspect of, you know, is this what I want to do or not? Is this me or not? You know, but there's so many different me's and there's so many, you know, good uh, conclusions to different uh, uh, problems. You know, there, there's so many solutions that, you know, when I, when I work with my uh, staff right now and I train another artist to work for me and we're trying to design something new, I say, look, guys, there are an infinite number of great solutions to this problem. Find me one. And it's unbelievable how hard it is to find that one great, you know, solution. And, you know, I spend most of my, um, you know, professional life rejecting things. You know, nope, that's not what I want. That's not what I want. And it, it gets very frustrating because, as I know and I believe, there are an infinite number of great solutions. Finding it's the hard thing, you know. And then um, because I can't articulate what it is, otherwise I would just do it. And so we work, we make things, and eventually we get the stuff that's good. And when I started making my uh, Judaica is what my specialty is, the Jewish art. Um, I wanted to to, to confuse people. Um, <laughs> there, there are two things. Um, one is, uh, you know, something is functional. In other words, you have to have two candles that can get lit on a Friday night service. They don't talk about, um, you know, what the candlesticks, you know, have to look like. It's just there have to be two candles and something has to hold those two candles. And so you have the things that are related to function. You know, it has to be something that's safe. You don't want the candles to fall over and start a fire. So you need to make a base that's, you know, heavy enough to hold on to it. And then there are the aesthetics. Um, you know, the nice thing about being a, um, you know, sculptor making Judaica is there are not a lot of rules. I mean, you know, the, the, you know, the Bible tells you to rest on this, on the Sabbath. Uh, you know, the tradition is to light the candles, but 
Nobody tells you how to make the candlesticks. And so I felt like I was the luckiest guy in the world. I could make the aesthetics anything that I wanted as long as it performed the function. And so back in the 1980s, when I started making the, um, the Jewish art, I decided what I'm going to try and do is something different from what most other people have done up until now. Rather than focusing on the function, I'm going to try and make something that is beautiful and that, you know, you're going to look at it and you're going to say, gosh, is that a candlestick or is that a work of art? Mm. And we always had that as our goal as we were making things. Still have it today. You know, is it is it the form of the function? Is it beautiful or is it functional? And, um, you know, that, that was the formula that worked for me because um, people then uh, wanted to have something beautiful around the house that they could then use. And so we worked very hard at, at, um, at, at doing that. And, and so, you know, to, to continue the story, I, um, I, you know, to get away from when I was Cornell making art and the time in between and getting to when I was diagnosed with um, uh, the pancreatic cancer, um, basically what, what happened was, you know, my stomach gave me some trouble. Uh, you know, it took probably three or four months to be diagnosed because, um, you know, I just thought I had no such stomach. I took the Maalox and that helped out. I watched what I ate, that helped out, but it still wasn't quite right. And, you know, in my case, you know, I was very lucky in that, you know, the tumor where it was growing basically kept the, um, uh, you know, my digestive, uh, uh, juices from getting in. It just, there was just a blockage. And so I was diagnosed rather early, um, you know, with a pancreatic problem through, um, you know, a, a simple stool test. And, but again, it took, I, I mean, I was, I had my first incident May 1st. I know the date because that's when I was making delivery. And, you know, it wasn't until probably August, um, you know, 18th or 19th that, you know, I've figured out that I had pancreatic cancer and, you know, that's, we were actually on vacation and, you know, sort of the good and the bad thing now about the way hospitals and doctors work it is that you have a, um, uh, you, you get a, uh, a note on your computer that says, go to my chart or whatever it may be called, where basically it says, a test results has come in. Mm -hmm. And so my wife and I are on, you know, in Lenox, Massachusetts on a vacation end of summer. And I had gone into the hospital the week before I left on vacation, still thinking just that I had an upset stomach or something like that. And, you know, suddenly I'm on vacation. I open up my computer and actually I look at my telephone. There's a message there. I go into my chart and, you know, they're waiting for me on a list of test results. And the doctor hasn't called me yet. I'm looking at these test results on my own. And I get the one that says, you know, there are all these things that are normal. And then there's something that's not normal. And, you know, you then, the, the, the wonderful danger of today is you have Google. Um, I put into the computer what the test result problem was. And it came back and said, uh, you know, in almost all cases, that means you have pancreatic cancer. So my wife and I are on vacation, we're by ourselves doing that thing, and suddenly I I hear that I have pancreatic cancer. Well, 
you know, and people that are listening here know how much of a shock that could be. It can just, you know, it can just knock you out. It, it beats you across the side of the head. And, you know, since it's pancreatic cancer, you say, well, you know, uh, how many days do I have? You know, how many months? You know, you don't even get into the conversation. How many years do I have? Because it's pancreatic cancer. And, um, you know, that was, um, you know, probably on a Wednesday that happened. On uh, on Thursday, you know, I wanted to get away from my wife for a little bit. And the first telephone call I made was to my insurance broker, who was a friend. I said, you know, Rob, am I still current with my, uh, you know, with my life insurance? You know, that's that's what it, you know, hits you like when uh, you hear something like that. At least some people, that's how it hit me. And um, he said, yeah, you're current. Don't worry about that. Mm. You know, I had other things to worry about, I guess. And so we, um, my wife and I got back to the room that night. And, you know, we started doing our own research. We made our own telephone calls. And, and I talk about this part just because, you know, from, from the point where I'm calling my life insurance agent to that point in time where, um, you know, I, I won't talk anything about bad stuff. I only talk about good stuff. You know, basically, we got in touch. We didn't even know what a nurse navigator was. Yeah. But we called up. I'm from Washington, D.C. Um, you know, we did some Google research. We saw that there was a good doctor in this field at, at uh, Georgetown University. Mm-hmm. We called up. And we're on vacation, I think it's like a Wednesday or a Thursday. And um, it was a Wednesday. And, um, you know, we got through to the uh, department, and so-and-so answers the phone and says, I'm the nurse navigator for pancreatic cancer. Well, I had found a home. It was so nice to realize that there was somebody there that was able to sort of walk me through the process and take care of me. Um, I explained to her, what was going on, what the um, the test result had been. And she said, well, we need to move quickly on this. And so, again, I'm talking to her on a Wednesday, and I'm saying, well, if you want me to, I'll cut my vacation short. I'll be there on Friday for a CT scan. And she said, no, that you don't have to do. Come Monday for a CT scan. That's how quickly they were able to move me into the system. And so I was at uh, Georgetown University. on. um, uh, I drove back from Lenox Sunday. On Monday morning at, at um, you know, 6.30, 7 o'clock, I was at the hospital getting ready for a CT scan. At 10 o'clock, um, you know, I was meeting with the chairman of the department, Dr. Winslow. And, you know, Dr. Winslow looked at the CT scan, and this is where it started getting better. Because in my particular case, because of the symptoms I had, um, basically they discovered what I had early. And... Um, mm. You know, rather than being a stage four situation where, you know, it really is important that you call up, you know, your uh, your life insurance guy to make sure everything, make sure everything's in order. Um, you know, I had a much different situation where um, I actually had, um, you know, a pretty good prognosis. Uh, she looked at it and she said, you're probably more like a stage two or three. You're not, you know, that far along. Nothing is metastasized yet. And I think you're going to qualify for something called a Whipple surgery. And, you know, I just started feeling better because, you know, things were broken, but they could fix it. And, you know, I had hope. And so basically um, over the course of the next probably week, 
Um, we we went to Johns Hopkins and we went up to Memorial Sloan Kettering. We're lucky we're in Washington, we're close to you know wonderful you know doctors and hospitals and everything. And so you know over the course of of a couple of days, we had talked to three experts, and in each case, I was lucky to the extent that you know everybody looked at the same kind of 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 information and everyone had exactly the same prognosis and protocol for me. And so what I then ended up with was uh, four months of chemo, a month off. I had my Whipple surgery. I had, uh, you know, a month off. I was getting ready to go in for my surgery in uh, February on the 17th. And on the 16th, I ended up in the emergency room at, um, uh, you know, Sibley hospital here. It turned out that I had had a, a mitral valve uh, problem probably for 30 years. And, you know, the cardiologist said eventually we'll have to get this fixed. Don't worry about it. Well, it turned out that the night before I was supposed to go into, or the day before I was supposed to go in for my Whipple procedure, um, what happened was is that I was at my office that day working because I worked up to the very end. And I'm walking up the steps to the second floor and I'm winded. I'm mm. out of breath. and it just got got worse. Well, it turns out that uh, probably from the chemo, the mitral valve had deteriorated. And I had close to what they call a 50% regurgitation, which means that the blood was flowing in one direction the way it was supposed to go. And then 50% of it was backflowing, getting in the way because the valve wouldn't close. And basically, I ended up in the emergency room because I had fluid on my lung. I couldn't walk up the steps. I could barely get out of bed to go to the bathroom. And over the course of 24 hours, um, you know, I was in trouble. And over the course of 48 hours, they gave me a diuretic. So I was back. But mm. I couldn't go into the Whipple surgery that day. In fact, they said, you're not a, a candidate right now uh, for the for the surgery. we got to get this fixed. And so, um, again, the healthcare system, when it works right for you, it's just amazing. Uh you know, my cardiologist, this was now Friday afternoon, my cardiologist gets on the telephone, calls up, uh, you know, a doctor in the, uh, uh, you know, one of the hospital centers here in in, uh, in the D.C. area. And, you know, at 10 o'clock on a Friday night, I'm talking to this specialist who's famous for doing what he does. And he says, I think you need to come in on Monday. And so on Monday, I'm there. They fit me in. They They do you know, the work that they have to do to find out what needs to be done. And and they say, yeah, we need to fix this, but we can fix it through your leg. We'll go up through a vein or an artery and, you know, we'll put some micro clips in and that should stabilize it enough so that you can have the uh, surgery. And I said, well, how soon you can do it? Can you do it? And this is Monday. He says, why don't you come back on Wednesday at five o'clock? We normally cut off at, you know, five, but, you know, I know you want to get this surgery done. It's important. And, um, so go ahead and, and come on in. And so I went in and on Wednesday, five o'clock by five thirty, I was sedated and they were fixing me up. And, um, you know, it was, I was, I was back in bed the next day. I was up and walking around and I was going to set the record for 
um, you know, a double microclip and going home. I've been very lucky. I've been resilient through this entire thing. Chemo hasn't bothered me that much. The surgeries haven't bothered me that much. But little freaky things happen. And so, you know, yeah, little freaky things like a valve that, uh, you know, is, is backflowing. <laughs> I'm sorry. I can't hear you there. I, I said little freaky things, Gary, like the valve in your heart that wasn't yeah, uh, yeah, working yeah. properly. I mean, it's an amazing outlook to have, I guess. Uh, well, but, but then the next, you know, so I'm, I'm done with the surgery and they say normally after the surgery, you stay there three to five days. Yeah. Well, you know, the morning of the third day, they said you could go home. And yeah. so, you know, my, my wife and I are walking down, we're on the uh, elevator, we're walking out on our own. They don't even put you in a you know, wheelchair to walk you out. I was going to walk out, I was going to go downstairs and have, have lunch. And as I'm walking to the, um, uh, you know, to the, to the mess hall there at the hospital, the, um, uh, the place where they had sealed the artery in the bottom of my leg burst. Oh God. And uh, over the course of about 15 minutes, my leg doubled inside because I was bleeding internally. And, you know, my wife grabbed a, a, uh, a wheelchair and rolled me back up. And, you know, they were putting pressure on it for about three or four hours. And I had to stay for another two days. But again, you know, it's just it's part of the whole process there as as we went through this thing. And um, then, uh, you know, so I, they got that taken care of. And at, at this point in time, you can imagine as I'm describing my condition, all the things that are wrong with me, my cardiologist had to call up the, uh, the surgeon at Hopkins and say, look, you really should talk to him. You know, don't look at the paperwork because you won't want to do the operation. It'll, it'll basically, you know, if, if people just looked at, at my forms, no one would operate on me because, you know, they expect me to die on the table. <laughs> I was just on paper such terrible shape. But, you know, in, in real life, I was asymptomatic. I mean, uh, you know, I was happy to be, you know, I was going to work and I was eating my, my, my hamburgers still. And, you know, just, you know, had good color and a good sense of humor. And so I would go to the doctors and they'd open up the books and they'd say, you look a lot better in person than you do on paper. And, um, so I had to go back to Hopkins. They looked at me and they said, okay, we can, we can do you in, uh, in another, uh, uh, three weeks. And so it delayed my, um, uh, surgery for about, uh, you know, three weeks or so to, after I had the mitral clips done. But then I went in and I went in on, um, March 18th. Um, you know, I only mentioned the date because this is the start of the whole COVID, COVID yeah. you know, close the hospital, you know, period. And, you know, we were, we were hoping to get me in. That's one of the reasons that we were rushing the mitral valve repair and everything else so that we could get me into the hospital on time. Well, I arrived at the hospital, Mike Brownlee, on a Thursday morning and, um, Wednesday, Wednesday, Thursday morning. And, and they ended up, uh, you know, doing the, um, micro, uh, they ended up doing the Whipple surgery that day. Uh, the next day my wife came back to visit with me because she was staying at an Airbnb right next to Hopkins. And, um, as she was walking in on the 19th, you know, as she was coming through the reception area, there was a, um, a, a young, a young man and his mother there. And she said to him, my, my wife overheard the mother say, 
um, you know, we're going home now. This is a non-essential surgery, and they're not going to do it today. So I was there on the 18th. They took care of me with the Whipple. On the 19th, they basically closed the hospital down. Uh, my wife was able to spend the night in the hospital room with me on a chair. On the 19th, on the 20th, they basically kicked her out wow. uh, because, um, you know, well, because of, of COVID. COVID. They were yeah, that was keeping everybody out of the hospital. Yeah. And, um, you know, so I was there by myself in intensive care. And, um, you know, intensive care, again, you know, was, was a crazy time for me. I was, you know, up and walking around feeling great. But then I had a, an AFib as a result of the uh, of the surgery, mm-hmm. and you know twice while I was in the um, uh, you know intensive care, you know they went to a code on me. I'm feeling fine. I'm in bed. I'm joking around, and twice, you know, suddenly, you know, my blood pressure goes from forty to two hundred to whatever, and you know they've got people in there with the paddles. Um, you know, looking to see whether or not they've got to jumpstart my heart. And, you know, both times, you know, just been stabilized with whatever they were doing. And at, at no point in time did I did I worry. I mean, I tell you, the, the quality of care that I had between Georgetown and Hopkins and Sibley, I mean, I've been to a lot of hospitals, you know, Washington Hospital Center. Well, I tell you, I've had such great care, and, you know, that's one of the things that I would tell other people that go through the process is, you know, the the doctors, they're the hardest working people in America. I tell you, these surgeons, they are there early in the morning. I would have, you know, the surgeon's associate, you know, the the young man or young woman who was, you know, working with them on, on a fellowship or whatever it is, they would show up at 6.30 in the morning. And they would still be there at eight o'clock at night. Yeah. And, you know, they would be visiting me in between doing procedures. I mean, you know, it was just they were they were amazing. And all I can tell you, given my results, they were effective. And, uh, you know, I feel really lucky, but it wasn't all luck. These guys did a great job. And, uh, you know, it, it's just, you know, medical care and technology if they catch it in time and that's the secret that's where i was lucky you know uh, you know i was just lucky in that you know because of where my tumor grew it it blocked something and so they found it early you know that's that's the amazing thing you know and um and so i qualified for a for a whipple gary i got a, so I got a what question happened next was the base oh, i'm sorry go ahead no i want to jump in here for a second and and just back up a bit you said like back in May of 19, you know, you were heading up to Boston, you had this stomach issue and, and you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. but health wise. And you said, you know, you were working out, even you were very super active. Have you ever had any issues, any other types of cancers throughout the years? Any, I mean, I know you said this heart issue was something that, you know, that the cardiologist said could potentially have been, you know, something here that's been around for 30 years, but were there any issues beforehand, before uh, May of well, 19? And then I know that's well, yeah, hard I, to look back sometimes because sometimes that's a well, hard thing to ask. You know, I, 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 I'm I saying yes here now. Um, You know, I, I told you that I was, you know, healthy as a horse my entire life, but a year and a half before the um, 
you know, probably in 2018, I had been diagnosed with a uh, prostate issue, and it turned out that it was prostate cancer, and I had a laser knife knife uh, procedure, um, you know, probably about 16 to 18 months before I went in for, uh, you know, the the um, Whipple procedure. Uh, my brother died of a melanoma, and there is some relationship between, you know, prostate cancer, uh, you know, pancreatic cancer yeah. and melanoma, uh, especially in Jewish men from, you know, Eastern Europe. Yeah. You know, they had the, um, uh, they did do the, um, Genetics. Uh, you know, the genetic testing yeah. on me. And I, uh, and I was I'm just going to go there. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, basically they, we did the genetic testing cause I wanted to be able to tell my, my siblings, yeah. uh, you know, if there was any issue for them or their kids. And, and in my particular case, there is not, uh, you know, which is good. But as the doctor said, you know, they said, you know, even though your, your genetics are negative, given your history and everything, um, we're going to treat you, um, you know, as aggressively as, as, as we can. And, um, has the family you know, done, uh, you mentioned, and I'm just curious, because uh, I know, you know, we've done a lot of podcasts and we've talked about genetics here and, and you are right. And you mentioned this early on. I mean, unfortunately, um, you know, the, the Jewish uh, background, the heritage is is very high in the BRCA, BRCA gene. Yeah. Um, and also with uh, some European countries as well. We've seen that. Um has anyone else? You said your 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 brother passed from melanoma or had melanoma? No, my brother actually, when he was fifty one, he died from melanoma. Oh. It's about twenty years now, and um, you know it it was. And again, you know, it just came out of nowhere. You know, he yeah. just had a little spot on the back of his head under his hair, and my brother had such wonderful hair; no one could see the spot yeah. until it was too late. Yeah, and um, you know, they they took it out. They thought they got it all. And then a year later, um, I was, uh, his, his wife and daughter were, uh, in Europe celebrating, you know, the daughter's graduation from high school. My brother had played, um, two, two rounds of golf that day. We were having a steak dinner together. His wife came home the next morning and took him straight to the hospital from the airport. Um, she said, you just don't look right. And basically over the course of the next couple of weeks, they did they did some uh, uh, some testing on him, but he went from the golf course to the hospital mm. in less than 48 hours. I mean, it was just, you know, pretty amazing with him. And, you know, what they thought they had gotten out, they didn't. They didn't and yeah. so, you know, he, he had a good year not knowing that he was dying from a melanoma. Oh, no. But by the time they diagnosed it the second time around, it was, you know, they did the CT scans and it was everywhere. everywhere yeah. You know, his body was just completely filled with it. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, you know, again, this is 20 years ago, technology. Technology, very, yeah. So it's interesting. A lot since then. It's interesting because, you know, the genetics piece we are very highly involved in. And uh, I know Hopkins has a study as well. We, we have funded a, a large uh, early detection of pancreatic cancer based on genetics called Precede yeah. with 35 centers. And actually Sheba, which I think you and I have talked about this, is part sure. of that effort in Israel. So it's, it's fascinating to me when we, we talk to thrivers and survivors on the podcast that have, you know, themselves experienced something along the lines of genetics, but haven't, you know, had a, a positive genetic test. And I, and I, 
you know, I, I'm not uh, not trying to put fear in anyone um, and not in, in, in your case as well, Gary. I just think we, the genetics piece is, we're just scratching the surface of genetics and disease and prevention, um, you know, and, and how, you know, and, you know, we, we handle these certain types of genes because I truly believe that the genetics piece is a bigger part and for a bigger conversation when it comes to pancreatic cancer in particular and other cancers, we'll get there, mm-hmm. uh, but there's got to be more work. So it's just fascinating to me, and I'm sure one of our geneticists would love to kind of look at your family tree at some point um, yeah. and look through that. Because I know there's been stories um, you know, of, of people, um, and we do know this genetically, that not everyone, let's say you and your brother, you know, and I, I look at my case, I have an older brother. Um, and we have two different genes. Like I am BRCA positive. My brother's not, you know, and, yeah. and my mom has the BRCA gene as well. So, um, you know, it's just kind of, I guess you would say the luck of the draw that you get these things from your parents. Cause not everyone passes them on, uh, you know, if you have children and, you know, potentially there's other genes that we just haven't identified, but so it's a fascinating piece of this disease that we are learning more and more about. So that's why I just bring it up. And it just, anytime these trigger words, you know, when you, when you hear prostate, melanoma, breast, pancreatic, you know, those are kind of all in that same family for that BRCA. And as we mentioned, you know, the Jewish heritage is, has such a high incidence of BRCA, um, in that lineage and in other European countries. So it's just uh, something to really be cautious about and concerned about just because I, I, you know, in your case, you caught it early enough um, where, you know, that's what our goal is, you know, the earlier we find these things and people are aware of it, the likelihood of them thriving. Yeah. Well, Well, yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, and when they did the genetic testing, one of the things I was hoping was that, you know, we'd qualify for some miracle cure they were yeah. testing someplace. And, you know, I got a, the report back and talked to the doctor and said, no, you just have, you know, regular run-of-the-mill pancreatic <laughs> cancer, nothing special for this. Yeah. Just go through the regular procedure. That's a but, good thing. Um, you know, it, it, it is important to, you know, learn every everything about it. You know, the other thing that's probably related to genetics as well, I assume, is how one responds to chemo. Um, in my particular case, um, you know, I had, when they, when they did the original CT scan, the tumor was pumping up against my, my arteries, all the, all the tubing that goes through there. And it had not yet, or they could not tell yet whether it had attacked it and whether the cancer was, you know, sort of inside of, you know, the, the arteries and veins and everything. Uh, they said it was sort of kissing it. And, and after I had four months of chemo, I had clear margins. And, you know, that was, that was a lucky thing because that makes the uh, procedure, you know, so much easier when they go in there and they do, uh, you know, sort of the repair job. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so, so they were working on that. And uh, they, they got me out of the procedure with, with no problem at all. I then had another two months of chemo. And as soon as I got done with chemo, we started talking with the cardiologist about the, um, uh, you know, the uh, mitral valve job because, you know, with all this COVID that's going around, um, you know, it's just very, you know, you want to get it done while you can get into the hospital. And Absolutely. So we, we scheduled the appointment. But but this this second batch of chemo that I did, 
It's one of the things that you and I have talked about. Um, it was very different from the first four months and in a in an unfortunate way. Um, so much about being treated by for cancer and and being supported is the community that you become part of or that that basically reaches out to you as the patient. And, you know, I know there were times when I was schizophrenic most of the time where, you know, sometimes I wanted people to support me and sometimes I wanted to be by myself. And, Mm. you know, I could never know which way I was going to be on a pretty given day. But one of the things about chemo was that when I went into chemo, I always knew that one of my best friends was going to be coming in and bringing me a nice hot sandwich. You know, my wife could drop me off there, walk me into the room, stay with me as much as she wanted and all that. Well, that was for the first four months. After COVID, what happened was basically, um, you know, they locked down the hospitals. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I would get there in the morning. I'd be wearing a mask. I might even be wearing gloves. You know, people are telling me I'm a high-risk group, and I'm going into a place where lots of people with lots of germs are. And it's pretty scary as you walk in the door. And, you know, I know my wife is worrying about me now as opposed to, you know, just being part of the, the, the healing process, the, the treatment. And so I go in, I, I get my, um, uh, you know, walk down to the room that I'm very familiar with. Beautiful room, great window, look outside. But it's just so different, this after after COVID hit, because, you know, whereas before, you know, the nurses are all there, they're busy smiling at you, they greet you at the door. You know, now everybody's wearing PP, you know, the PPP, PPE equipment, you know, where, yeah. you know, people have a mask on, you can't tell whether they're smiling or whatever, but there's just a tension in the infusion center that was not there before. And, you know, whereas um, in in the beginning, I would have, you know, my, my children would come, they'd visit with me. You know, now I am there by myself. It is just me. It's a nurse wearing, you know, like a yellow outfit and, you know, a mask and, you know, maybe a face mask, and I'm hooked up to a tube. It's just me and the tube is the way I would like to, hmm. you know, describe it. And it really, it it was so unfortunately different than it was before. And, um, you know, we were talking earlier about the strength stones that I did, and I bring that up again now, because one of the things that I wanted to do was, you know, I had been working with people with breast cancer for years with no real connection to it, fortunately. And what I wanted to do was to basically expand the uh, strength stone and my other, you know, glass ribbon projects to include, um, you know, more than breast cancer, to, uh, you know, in particular, of course, pancreatic cancer. And I'm and I'm sitting there in the infusion room I'm by myself, and I said, you know, these strength stones that I've been doing, I I want to turn them into what I would call chemo buddies, because. I gave these strength stones out to my friends before I went in the first time. And, you know, I have, you know, when I, whenever I would go in, you know, my friends would know that I'm going in, you know, every other week, Wednesday, 1030 in the morning. Well, you know, starting about 11 o'clock, my telephone would start ringing and I would have friends from around the country who would send me a picture of them holding onto the strength stone that I had given them. And, you know, they'd send me a note and they'd say, praying for you, Gary or whatever it may be. And in some ways, I, I think that we need that connection right now, the praying for you, Gary, or the praying for you, whoever you are, uh, or thinking about you, 
you know, it's it's more important now than it was before COVID. Um, because after COVID, you're just so isolated. Um, you know, I we, we were doing some focus groups on the um, Glass Ribbon Project as we, mm. we try and roll out chemo buddies. And, you know, just uh, last week I was talking to a, a woman who um, – you know, is, um, uh, she's a survivor of breast cancer and she's formed her own, uh, you know, nonprofit to support other women. And she says, it's just changed so dramatically. You know, in the old days, people would bring you food. Now they're afraid to bring food over to your house because you're just going to throw it away because, you know, you're not going to use it because it's COVID, you know, is it infected, filled with germs, you know, can people can't come visit you. People can't bring you gifts. I mean, it's just, so isolating. I mean, fighting cancer is is hard enough as it is, and suddenly to have this layered on top of it is is a real problem. And so we're doing the um, the chemo buddy program with glass ribbon with strength stones, and um, you know what we're doing is we're working right now with um, survivors and thrivers, people and patients, people that are associated with a variety of different kinds of of cancer. And we're creating those sheets of glass that I talked about earlier. And what we're doing is we are, um, and you and I can talk about the program later, you know, as you're ready. But, you know, basically what we're doing is we're donating strength stones to uh, newly diagnosed patients who can basically give them to friends and say, look, think about me when I go in for chemo or when I go in for my procedure. And, um, you know, we hope to do this with, you know, thousands of people. Um, you know, I, I created a, um, a, a nonprofit and the nonprofit raised money so that I don't have to charge patients to give them these, uh, strength stones. And, you know, I, I hope it, it makes a difference. It's, it's, um, it's important to me for the people who are going through the treatment that they can reach out to folks. You know, one of the things that, that I found and that I find from talking to other people is that, you know, when when you get cancer, you just don't know how to act to other people. Mm-hmm. And the same thing is, is true of other people don't know how to act towards towards you. And the schizophrenia that I was talking about earlier where sometimes I went with people and sometimes I didn't, you know, it's really not even necessarily under my control. And I think you can hear from talking to me that I've had a pretty good attitude through this whole thing, but, you know, um, you know, almost irrationally good attitude and I still have problems with it. So I can only imagine what, you know, like a normal person would, (laughs) would, would feel about, um, you know, getting together with people, being supported, the whole deal. And, um, so it, it really, you know, the strength stones are a way to make a connection. You know, I was, I was talking to, um, you know, in the focus group that we were doing last week, one of the young women that was in it said, you know, I came down with, um, with my particular kind of cancer. And for some of my friends, I just dropped off the earth. They didn't know how to act with me. And so they just shut me out. And that was just terrible. And as terrible as it is, it's so easy for me as a patient or as a friend of a patient even to imagine how that happens because people don't know what to do. I don't, I didn't know how to treat people once I was diagnosed. You know, you want to keep a stiff upper lip and sometimes you don't. And, you know, friends don't know whether you want something or don't want something. And um, so having something like a strength stone that you can give to a friend 
and say, look, here is something for you to do that makes a difference to me. I'm going in for my procedure on Wednesday. Do me a favor, just grab the stone, uh, say a prayer, wish me luck, send me a picture, whatever it is. It, it's being able to sort of, you know, it's almost institutionalizing a connection so that it, it makes it okay. And, you know, people don't know what's okay. Not that there's any one okay or, or not, but, you know, just being able to sort of talk to people and and give them, you know, a a vehicle, a means to, to sort of connect with you is, is really good. And I, and I used to appreciate those pictures from my friends, you know, on my cell phone, thinking about you, Gary. And, you know, I know that my friends really appreciated being able to do that because you don't know what to do in some ways. You know, I'm not going to say it's harder for a friend than it is for you because, you know, God, you know, fighting cancer is, is the hardest thing. Um, but it, it's not easy on family and friends either. And so anything we can all do to make it easy on each other is something that, you know, I'm all for. And so, you know, we're making these strength stones, but, you know, it, it's there are other things that, that folks can do as well. We're just trying to do what little bit we we can. And, you know, Dino, it was, you know, I I reach out to lots of organizations and lots of people. I've got to tell you how um, how pleased I was that you were so responsive to the concept that I was suggesting to you. And in fact, you know, you're the first organization that we're working with where we're sending, you know, the, uh, the stones off to you to distribute to uh, newly diagnosed patients. We hope we can do it with other cancers, with, with other organizations soon as well. But, you know, you really were sort of a, uh, leader and very responsive. And, you know, I'll, I'll tell you the truth. It's part of my therapy. You know, <laughs> you, you've been good for me in that you've taken my telephone calls and you've said, and you've been positive. And, you know, I really appreciate that. And I, and I thank you very much for that. Now I've talked so much. Well, yeah, no, I, I, you know, that, thank you for mentioning, you know, all the kind words and stuff, but, you know, I think the one thing, and I'll just say this about, you know, this podcast, is not about us, but you know, the one thing that I, you know, we're, we're approaching uh, tomorrow as we record, this is our 10th anniversary, which is pretty special um, looking back. But the reason why, you know, I decided to do what we've done here at Project Purple was to, you know, give people a positive influence or a positive impact in their life when going through this this evil thing that I call pancreatic cancer. Uh, well, I call it evil, but this thing called pancreatic cancer. And and I think, you know, the parallels in what you've done, Gary, here with the strength stones and, you know, it's, it, it's awesome that now we have the ability to offer this to all of our patients that are newly diagnosed with our cure pack, along with our face masks from New Balance. All of this is free. You know, and, 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 you know, but you, you hit something so powerful when you were talking about your personal experience. And, th and this is something that I, I hope our podcast has done over the, the two years, two plus years that we've had the podcast and shared so many stories. And one of my questions is always about, you know, friends and family tend to hide because they don't know what to do. Right. And yep. I think what, what these have done though, what, the, what this strength zone is going to do though, is it's going to help facilitate what to do. Right. Yep. Because just the simple gesture 
and and you know the whole backstory about it is just really fascinating to me and so powerful and you know and and you know i mean you know you, you've gone through it you've walked the walk and so you can talk the talk of battling pancreatic cancer but the whole aspect and the spirituality of this and that's something else and I've talked about this previously on another podcast. There's an arc here that you've gone through in your life. And I'm I'm drawing a picture here with my show notes. And, you know, you think about where you started from a spirituality standpoint of, you know, being Jewish and then being involved in, you know, doing these things that were what people wanted and with the Jewish faith, not not necessarily what you wanted. And when you brought, when you said that before, how you, the art teacher at Cornell said, yeah, you're, this is going to be successful. People are going to buy your stuff because you, you had that. And I, I wrote this uh, a couple times here is this selflessness. It's not about you. It's not about your art. Like, Hey, if you don't like my art too bad, I'll go find someone who will buy this thing because they like it. It's like, no, what, what do people want? I want to build something and create something that people are going to want, that they're going to love and they're going to cherish and put your blood, sweat, and tears into it. And that's how you felt from that. And then going into your business and then now, you know, fast forward to your own personal experience. It's just so powerful. So we're excited to have the Strength Stones as part of our program here at Project Purple and our Cure Packs. And it's just a, it's a great, great I think, you know, what you just said, you know, allowing those conversations, because Gary, I will tell you, probably the biggest thing that we get from caregivers when we get those calls, and we get a lot of them, is what do I do? And I can tell you, I probably get, personally, just because I'm in this business and it's not a negative thing, but I probably get two to three calls a month from someone who has a friend who is diagnosed with pancreatic cancer yeah. or other cancers and goes, what, what's the best thing I can do? And you know, uh, that, that is something that I think like people really, really struggle with, you know, of, yeah. you know, being newly diagnosed, like if it's, it's a loved one or a neighbor and you're right about what's, you know, this COVID thing is, you know, it's a it's a serious thing, you know, for anyone battling cancer. It's a serious thing for anyone who has a immuno uh, immune compromise position. But please, audience listening, it doesn't mean that you need to hide and go away. I think you know people. You know, this is the play on words, and I've been really vocal about this, Gary, from the very beginning because I got worried when they started to say social distance yourself. You know, it wasn't, it's social distancing isn't social uh, avoiding or social isolation, which I feel like a lot of cancer patients, in particular pancreatic cancer, because I've talked to a lot of them, have isolated themselves socially, which is not good. This is not good. Yeah. And, and, and I don't think it's them necessarily, but people, you know? And so that's, you know, we still, you know, and I remember we, we did a podcast or we did some marketing stuff early on where, you know, you could still FaceTime. Like my mom's a two-time breast cancer survivor. Like I was nervous, you know, in the very beginning, but we would, we would FaceTime. We would go over and sit outside and talk through the, the screen glass door, or, you know, through the window, you know, you do these kinds of things. Now that does seem a little crazy, I guess, but like, this is the new normal or the next normal that we're in. Right. And so, yep. you know, I, I really think what you said is just so, so powerful in the sense that, you know, with this COVID 
situation. I think our cancer patients are being ignored um, in a negative way because people didn't know how to deal with it before. And now like you throw this social distancing and the, and the fear of, you know, being asymptomatic and potentially infecting someone, you know, and no one wants that guilt, um, you know, cause that's what the media has taught us. And, and that's what science has, has said. Um, you know, it's just really, really sad and it's scary. But these, mm -hmm. these strength stones are just so powerful because that allows, you know, someone fighting to be able to give friends and family that, that they can be there for them in a supportive way and have faith that they're not alone and they can get through this. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. And thank you for sort of recognizing it and giving us a chance to talk to people about it, you know. What, what I hope from a conversation like this is that some of the folks that will listen to it are going to feel better. They'll, they'll think of a way to do something that makes, you know, that we can help, we can help people with this sort of thing. It's the, it's the social worker in me coming out. Now. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that was one of my notes here in this whole arc that you've been on. I got two questions for you left here, and then we're going to give uh, our audience an opportunity where to connect with you. We've mentioned faith. You've mentioned faith in this whole journey you know, with pancreatic cancer, how, how has faith been a part of that? I, I'm, I'm hesitating here only because I'm trying to figure out the best way to, to say this in that, you know, I'm a very spiritual person, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and I, I, what, what I believe is that what I, what I believe is what is. And so if, if I sort of believe that prayer is going to help me and I tell my friends to pray for me, then it makes a difference, you know, but you know, I, you know, it, gosh, I'm, I'm, I'm never at a loss for words, but you know, here you, you put me sort of <laughs> on a, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sort of stumbling uh, along here, but you know, basically, you know, I, I have, you know, people, have helped me a lot, you know, I, I focus more on the people part of it rather yeah. than, you know, some deity part of it. You know, it's just the, the relationship between my friends and I, my family and I, me and, you know, my religion and everything, it, it's, it's all contributed to my getting better is sort of just the way I feel because I believe it does. You know, I can't prove it. You know, I just believe that, um, you know, all of these things are, we're, we're connected with other people mm -hmm. and that, you know, some energy flows between us Yeah, and, you know, I'm here and I'm doing well because my friends have sent their energy my way and I've been here to accept it, you know, and, um, you know, part of it is just being willing to accept it. Oh, I don't know what to say beyond that, you know. No, you answered it perfectly. I, I think, you know, it's, it's a powerful statement because, you know, and I bring that up because I think we've always had with, you know, the hundred plus episodes of survivors and thrivers is there's, there's some part of, some part of faith, family, friends that comes into this win, this W that you, yeah. you're on and doesn't matter who you believe in. Um, you know, it's, this is not about religion, uh, which is better, which is, you know, going to get you through it. It's just a matter of having faith and having that family and friends to get you through that. And I think, you know, someone who's not religious, 
faith and family and friends is the same, you know, whether it's, you know, whatever religion you believe in and, you know, but that, that faith in those loved ones that are there by your side and they're there for you and they're, they're, they're giving you positive vibes and, you know, they're, they're with you in the fight. It's critical. Yeah. It's critical. Last question here. And this, we always save the hardest question for the last one. So I, I chuckle a little bit, um, not, not that we do this on purpose, but it really brings us full circle on this. And, and there's no right or wrong to this question um, in terms of what your answer might be. But in your experience, Gary, what is your definition of pancreatic cancer? What is my definition? We see, I'm, I'm such a mechanic. It's the same way I approach my, my artwork is... You know, I, you know, I, I looked at function, and then I wanted to do form with it as well. You know, as you asked me, what is pancreatic cancer? I just say it's, you know, it, it's a disease, and uh, basically, like any disease, it's something that you know you want to try and cure if you can. I, I mean, to me, the pancreatic cancer is just—it's just a thing. It doesn't define who I am. It's just something that I've had. And when I say have, I hope I mean that, you know, and, um, you know, right now I'm, I'm no evidence of disease and, you know, I hope that pancreatic is cancer is just something in the past for me, but it's something that, um, I'm, I'm happy to, uh, talk with other people about who may be going through a whipple or something like that, but, but mainly talk as a mechanic. I mean, just, you know, these are the things that happen. This is what you have to do. Uh, to me, the whole pancreatic cancer thing is just, it, it's a thing like other things, you know, and, um, you know, it's just because it's a disease and because it could have hurt me, I'm glad that I fought it, you know, beat it, I hope. Powerful, powerful message. Our last thing, and one of the most important things is if someone listening to this podcast, like you said, is maybe going through their Whipple or maybe they're going through chemotherapy um, right now and, and similar to how you dealt with it during your time in this COVID reality. Where's the best place that someone can connect with you? And maybe it's about the glass ribbon project and more about the art and your professional stuff, but where, where's the best place for people to connect with you, Gary? Well, you know, the, um, uh, on the glass ribbon project, we actually have a website where we're doing it now, but it's uh, glassribbon.org glassribbon.org and you know that has contact information how to uh, how to reach me you know at, at the office and then if somebody wants to talk about you know the Whipple procedure or any other part of this you know I'm definitely amenable to uh, receiving a telephone call but you know go to the website to track me down there's an email list there uh, you know send me if you want to talk just send me an email with a telephone number and a time to call you back and you know I'll do my best uh, to do that um, if I can be of help to anybody, it's a social worker in me coming out again. It'd be my pleasure. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, Gary, thank you for being on the Project Purple podcast, for sharing your story. And thank you for allowing Project Purple to share your strength stones and, and the positivity and everything that they're about. We're really excited to have that as part of our Care Pack program and share the positive things that you're doing with our community. So, Really appreciate all the support. And as we say wow. here on the Project Purple podcast, thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, please share us, follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. And until next time, be safe. Be safe.